Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. We're so excited to welcome Dr. Bob Honigberg, uh, one of our team members here at SSI, who's going to help us reflect a little bit on our previous episode with Dr. Jim Min from Clearly Health and some of the bold mission and activities going on in that organization and what it takes for other organizations to apply similar thinking and similar principles in order to be successful. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. To start out today's conversation, I would love to maybe just reflect a little bit about what Clearly Health is and what makes it different in the industry. It's definitely taking a really unique approach and has the potential to really disrupt how healthcare in the cardiology spaces um, is delivered and how the life sciences industry is thinking about uh, development in the cardiology space. So maybe, Bob, can you give a little bit of an overview there? Sure, sure. And I'll start by saying what clearly is not. This is the way uh, Jim Min described it. It's not an AI company. It's not a CT. It, it's not a digital company. It's not an imaging company. He describes it as a digital imaging company leveraging AI. And it creates a personalized care path uh, for cardiovascular evaluation, treatment, education and tracking, which is based on computational biological data from CT angiography. So from CT angiography, you get the presence, the amount and the type of plaque and it's scaled up. So even though it's personalized at at the patient level, uh, this is something that I imagine can be used for large practices for hospitals, for hospital systems, employers, uh, commercial insurance carriers, et cetera. Um, His vision is to eradicate heart disease. It's a big, big vision. And he emphasizes the fact that uh, cardiovascular disease uh, is the number one public health epidemic and that a death from a heart attack occurs every 1.7 seconds. And lastly, I'll say that clearly leverages an approach that Jim developed with his colleagues at Cornell uh, and successfully implemented it in the clinic. That's a great overview, Bob, and very much appreciate it. If we could break down a couple of different things you just mentioned and jump into it a little bit more, I'd love to start with that last point, that cardiovascular disease is such a wide epidemic globally and the mission of the organization is to eradicate heart disease. Ramin, Bob, I would love for maybe you to jump in and give some thoughts on what does it take to build a business on such a bold mission? It is so big, so complicated. What are your thoughts on where to start and have we seen other organizations be successful in in such a, a bold approach? Yeah, it is a really bold mission statement to eradicate disease. I mean, really it is, uh, it requires a change in standard of care. It's a huge lift and it requires uh, a leader such as Dr. Min um, to, to verbalize this. You know, I, I think having a vision like this, it motivates your internal 
uh, employees. Uh, it aligns strategies and investments. Uh, and it communicates to external stakeholders a, a, you know, a purpose that, that, that he's, you know, you're never going to deviate from. And, and I've seen this before. I think, uh, Kevin Conroy, who is the CEO of, of Exact Sciences, he has articulated for a very long time that with Cologuard, he would like to eradicate colon cancer. And, um, they've done an amazing job of bringing, that product to market for colon cancer screening. Um, so, um, and the last thing I'll say is that, you know, the, those are big visions for big diseases, but, you know, visions like that, we have seen three of us in rare disease companies that are really palpable and they're easier in rare disease because, you know, it is, it's the entire company gets aligned around the disease. You meet patients, you meet families, you're close with patient advocacy organizations, and it becomes really personal. Uh, so I think leaders like like uh, Jim Min and Kevin Conroy, they personalize this message for big disease states. Yeah, no, absolutely agree, Bob. And, and just to build on that, uh, first of all, I love his vision to eradicate a disease just just on his own. It's it's a great vision to have, and especially for for in cardio cardiovascular space, which is you know one of the number one epidemic. When you have a vision like that, what I really like about <clears throat> the conversation that we had, and you see it with other leaders as well, is that you also have to back that vision up, right? Uh, it's great to have that vision, but how? What am I going to do differently, or what am I going to do? right, as an organization to back that vision up. And the number one thing is the science, is the data, right? So you have to kind of really focus on, if I'm going to take that bold vision, I also got to be thinking about that I'm going to have tons and tons of data that we are uh, producing and bringing patients in, making sure that we are actually creating that data that supports that overall vision. If you look at back and some of the studies that uh, that Jim talked about, you know, they have transformer studies with close to I think eight thousand patients and a couple of hundred multiple uh, multi center sites uh, all over the world, very global, big, you know, studies. And these studies are not are not easy to run, uh, right? And not not just about the data and data uh, interpretations and bringing everything together and look at, but also from a cost perspective. So you have to make sure that you have the board behind it. You have to make sure that there is funding available. Uh, but if your vision and that the, the task and the focus areas, which is basically comes down for these type of smaller biotech companies producing the data are not aligned, uh, then there will be a huge disconnect and, and you probably won't able to realize it. And that's what I really like about what Clearly is doing is really basically putting their putting their money where, where they think that supports the vision. It's such a good point. And I think on the research side, we get into what steps make this huge mission really tangible and what makes it feasible are very clear steps and milestones that the organization can work towards. In this circumstance, it's a very robust data set that can really start to move the needle in terms of provider behavior, in terms of understanding of using these tools in a screening capacity to identify the patients who will benefit most and get that intervention earlier. The other thing that we haven't talked much about, but 
I think is incredibly important for other organizations considering these bold missions is who benefits from making this change. So patients will certainly benefit because we can move from a more proactive versus a reactive approach to treating cardiovascular disease. But the hospital institution, value-based care for payers, we're really working at a really interesting time in the industry that I think the perspective and the opportunity for this kind of a tool is ripe at this stage that maybe five, seven years ago, we would not have been in the same position. So it's really interesting to think about what makes these, this mission very tangible, what steps do we have to take, but also what are the value drivers that are going to enable the success of a product like this? That's a great point. I, I think payers really play a huge role as, as well as regulators. And, you know, when I look at going back to colon cancer screening, um, you know, you have your regulatory hurdle for screening with, with a uh, screening indication, which is very high. And then you have essentially a policy, you know, screening is a policy that needs to be endorsed by the government. So for Cologuard, their pivotal trial was over 10,000 patients and they needed the buy-in approval from the U.S. Prevention Services Task Force. And then essentially they needed an act of Congress um, to get a screening indication and reimbursement uh, for average risk patients. And I think for cardiovascular disease, it's even more difficult because uh, for clearly because they really need to show data around accurate diagnostics, uh, prog prognostic data around risk factors, particularly around plaque composition, clinical utility. That is, that is such an important concept where payers are going to ask, all right, you have this great software and, and uh, that's working with this, this test data. But what's 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 the uh, what's the, the the so what? Um, you know, will physicians uh, will they prescribe uh, medications based upon this data? Uh, will they will they change the dose of the medication? And then they ask if they do that, will it change the outcomes? So you have to collect that data downstream as well. And then there's health economic data. So it is, it's a huge ask and commitment to clinical evidence generation. Right. And I think the two of them kind of go together hand in hand, right? So when, when I'm thinking value-based healthcare or medicine, I'm always thinking about the, the key two components for me are, are focused on improving patient outcome and, and for long-term, obviously, that, that you touched upon, and also reducing cost. If you can bring those two together, Right and have the data that supports that. That's that's to me is the, is really the cornerstone of a value based you know approach. And and again goes back to the mission because if you're just improving the outcome and the cost is going to actually increase. And yes, there may be some value to that as well. And you have to look at it case by case. It's not like if the cost cost um, increases, then that doesn't mean that as long as the patient is benefiting and the outcome is positive. That's a still good thing to do. Uh, but you really want to make sure that you focus on the key components that if you are successful and when you are successful to having that patient benefit, 
the cost is actually decreasing. And in any type of prevention, rather than treating the disease itself and trying to prevent the disease to even actually taking place or maybe treating it early on, definitely has a strong component of, uh, of a cost aspect to it, which is, I think, makes it, makes it really powerful tool. Um, it's harder to do than, than just set, talk about it, obviously. Um, but I think the mind shift of, of our industries is starting to focus on, not just recently, on what, what's the cost-benefit analysis here. And that's an important, important decision maker for, for everyone involved in the, in the healthcare, not just, not just the pharma, but also uh, the physicians, the treaters, the hospitals, the payers, obviously, the patients. Um, and many other stakeholders. Yeah, I think uh, another great point. And, you know, I think Jim really spoke to this, the sustainability of clearly would be based upon payer coverage, having codes for reimbursement, the ability to show that the quality of healthcare has improved while bending that cost curve, while preserving the financial incentives, not changing it too much for the providers and also allowing for personalization. You know, you, you need to maintain that focus on the patient as well. Um, so all of those are really important. Um, you know, the ability to um, get into uh, guidelines, society guidelines, both uh, um, uh, within your therapeutic area uh, and, and by country internationally and have coverage uh, recommendations from health technology assessments around the world is quite important. Yeah. Well, I, I have a question uh, for both of you. Um, and that is, how hard is that to get that buy-in from the board, from your investors? How does, how does a CEO um, and, and his C-suite executive team should position themselves to get that buy-in from the board and the investors? Uh, what are some of the challenges or solutions that you see that we, they need to overcome? It's a great question. I think it depends on the composition of your board and the investors at the onset of the business. And so if these kind of bold goals and public health issues are at the core of the business from day one, the composition of your board need to, needs to be made up of those who really fundamentally understand the problem that you're trying to solve, understand the barriers, have the ability to think about creative ways to overcome those barriers and your investors need to be willing to play the long game. They need to understand that success is not defined in one year periods of time and success is going to mean likely a large upfront cash outlay to get to a longer term outcome. And so things like Clearly and Colgard and related organizations are making significant upfront investments. My guess, and I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't, my guess is that they probably do have some kind of public funding at some point as well supporting. Um, and that those kinds of investments really are long-term investments and, and the composition of the team supporting them have that view, um, but also recognize the steps that you have to take in order to make those those long-term investments successful and are willing to, to support the organization and overcoming the barriers to get there. Yeah, I think that's those are great points. You need the committed board and shareholders that understand the mission and how to get there. 
Um, it, it is interesting. Jim did mention uh, also a few philanthropic investors that that always helps. And look, there's other strategies to get money as well outside of the public markets, and you know from the government, uh, NIH grants, public-private partnerships, relationships, joint ventures with strategic partners. You know, either in life science or uh, uh, or the health insurance industry. So. There's ways to get there, but you know, clearly generating the evidence and the level 1A evidence, that is one of the most important barriers to entry uh, um, that you can establish for a company like this. So based off that and the, the screening tools that clearly is bringing to market, Bob, you referenced Colagard. I'm thinking back to one of our earliest episodes of this show when we met with Sharif Terraman from Cognoa and, and they're bringing a screening tool uh, for early diagnosis, diagnosis of autism. In these kinds of circumstances, we're really shifting the point of care for patients to much, much earlier point in their disease progression, if, if there is a disease to progress, or to a point, you know, in the autism situation where you can actually intervene and, and hopefully have an impact on that child's outcome. And the circumstance where we're intervening earlier in the patient's diagnosis, how do you feel like this kind of shift is going to impact the life sciences industry where so many of our development programs in cardiology, for example, are actually looking at mid to late stage disease, because that's where we feel like we can have the greatest therapeutic effect in our clinical trials. Do we feel like the industry is gonna to have to shift earlier in order to really figure out, do the same drugs and, and therapies that we had been developing, are they still gonna work at these early stages where they historically were not able to find these patients? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, I think, yes, for, for better healthcare and outcomes, you do want to find disease earlier and you want to intervene and treat early. Um, that, that is just the paradigm that makes sense. But when you look at it from a, from a manufacturer or company standpoint, the opportunity to show benefit in more severe disease and late stage disease is easier in clinical trials. You know, that's the paradigm for oncology uh, drug development. You, you, you establish the benefit in stage four patients and then you, you work kind of backwards. And um, so it is a new paradigm. I think there are companies that are, uh, are going for it, you know, and they're using uh, companion diagnostics and biomarkers and, and looking for subpopulations that will benefit early. Um, um, so it is happening. Uh, what do you think, Ramey? Right. No, absolutely. I agree. I, th I think it is happening and it is a paradigm shift. And we are on that trajectory. Um, and it doesn't have to be either or, right? Um, you could still focus on making sure that you take care of the patients that need that drug and they're in need of it now, right? But you should also at the same time focus on, well, what, what are some of the other areas that we can focus on to maybe screen these patients earlier, maybe try to have a prevention um, earlier on so these patients don't end up there. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, the resources are limited, 
right? And there are investors, whether you are a small biotech that is just getting off the ground or you are a huge pharma uh, organization, you, you kind of have to make sure that you focus on the areas that also brings the return on your investment because that's what also the investor wants, right? And that's a, there is a reality to it. Uh, I like to think about it as handling and managing and focusing on what's really important today, right? By today, I don't mean necessarily the same day, but, you know, shorter term. But absolutely, you've got to keep your eyes also on what can we do to eradicate this particular disease or have it early on prevention tools or a screening that helps to pick up these patients earlier on. Um, I think the payers are going to play a, play a very important role in this as well because they are going to be very interested in what can be done so the cost of the healthcare. I mean, the payers and, and the government, right? Uh, because a lot of the cost of a lot of the diseases could bankrupt, you know, smaller countries as well. So those two coming together, I think, will drive that that paradigm shift. I mean, even if you look at 10, 15, 20 years ago, a lot of these screening tools that exist today uh, was not even available and, and nobody was doing anything about it, right? So m- more and more companies are becoming interested in this particular area. Um, and they're looking for success. They're looking for uh, looking at some other therapeutic areas, Clearly, is, is, is going to be successful at what they're doing, and they become, you know, the gold standard that other diseases start looking at it that way as well. So it kind of builds on one and another um, as you move forward in the spectrum of, of clinical development. I agree. I think, you know, from the very optimistic point of view, it's probably going to continue in the same way, Bob, you were describing in oncology. We'll probably continue to develop drugs in later stage disease where we know we can show the upfront therapeutic benefit, but where the development program or how we would typically think about designing our clinical strategy or our clinical development plan in the early stages, our life cycle strategies typically end at mid-stage disease because we know that we're not going to be able to capture this early disease population. But now we have this huge addition that we can potentially identify that historically had not been developed for. And so I think for drug developers thinking about their portfolio and their pipeline, at least within the context of cardiology and, and where clearly its impact can be had, we can start to think about a much longer runway for the life cycle of an asset and really to think about once we prove it in this population, what are we going to do to continue to focus further and further upstream and prevent the long-term outcomes so hopefully those patients never actually hit that mid or late stage disease that we historically had been targeting them for. So I think there's a huge market potential. We just need to think about what does the development process look like? And I'm sure regulators and others are going to have to come along for the for the ride as well to think about, you know, what is the relative impact we can have and is stabilizing or reversing disease good enough for how we really want to expand label. And, you know, I would I put out there that I think it should be. Um, we're just potentially not there yet. Right, right. And clearly, if you're looking earlier in the disease, I mean, it's going to be a more expensive program. It's going to be a larger, you're going to need a larger sample size. You know, if you, and again, in oncology, if you look at um, trials around adjuvant uh therapies, you know, they're, they're much larger studies. They're, they're, they're difficult. And cardiovascular disease, I think is really unique. I, I find it fascinating because um, there are risk factors that are, that, that are modifiable 
uh, lifestyle based, you know, related to smoking, related to exercise, diet, uh, prevention of diabetes, uh, age, you know, age, we're, we're, we all get cardiovascular disease. The question is, when can you catch it? And, you know, if you look at the history of, of pharmaceutical markets, there have been uh, markets that have been um, created around these risk factors. In the 70s, they created an entire market around controlling hypertension. In the 80s, they created an entire market around creating, uh, around uh, reducing lipids and cholesterol uh, with statins. And, you know, there, there's just a really interesting history. Now you have a huge expenditure in late stage disease around interventional procedures, whether it's in the cath lab or, or in the operating room surgeries, um, you know, you're treating late stage disease, you're, you're, you're treating acute events. Yes, you can make those more efficient, but, uh, you know, the fact, and Jim mentioned this, that a high percentage of patients that have sudden cardiac death or even uh, heart attacks, they have never had a symptom or they've had an atypical symptom. So that's where the gap and the opportunity lies in cardiovascular medicine. Great. Well, Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great discussion. I think we're all very excited to see how Clearly continues to develop their organization, the impact that they, they continue to have. And we'll all be rooting for them and hopefully supporting many organizations, figuring out how to move further up in the food chain and in the development process so that we can, we can treat patients more proactively. Thanks so much. Thank you. Great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.